0: My name is Mary Catherine Blackwood. I'm eighteen years old and I live with my sister Constance. I have often thought that with any luck at all I could have been born a werewolf, because the two middle fingers on both my hands are the same length, but I have had to be content with what I had. I dislike washing myself and dogs and noise. I like my sister Constance and Richard Plantagenet and Amanita phalloides, the death cut mushroom. Everyone else in my family is dead. The last time I glanced at the library books on the kitchen shelf, they were more than five months overdue, and I wondered whether I would have chosen differently if I had known that these were the last books, the ones which would stand forever on our kitchen shelf. We rarely moved things. The Blackwoods were never much of a family for restlessness and stirring. We dealt with the small surface transient objects, the books and the flowers and the spoons, but underneath we had always a solid foundation of stable possessions. We always put things back where they belonged, We dusted and swept under tables and chairs and beds and pictures and rugs and lamps, but we left them where they were. The tortoiseshell toilet set on our mother's dressing table was never off place by so much as a fraction of an inch. Blackwoods had always lived in our house and kept their things in order. As soon as a new Blackwood wife moved in, a place was found for her belongings. And so our house was built up with layers of Blackwood property, weighting it and keeping it steady against the world.
1: Your shelf for mine, talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for mine, kick back, relax, crack a book, unwind at your shelf. Welcome to your shelf Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library.
0: And I'm Austin Brigden, Circulation Specialist here at the Longview Public Library. Hi, Becky.
1: Hi, Austin.
0: I've been really looking forward to this one.
1: Today, uh, we are talking about the work and life, to a certain extent, of the author Shirley Jackson.
0: Yeah, um, I imagine... A lot of our listeners will have seen Shirley Jackson around, heard about Shirley Jackson in the last few years more than you would have in the 40 years before that. She's, she's had quite a revival. Should we do our background with Shirley Jackson like we usually do? Sure. Do you want to start?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I can start. So like many youth, I read the lottery in a middle school English class, and that was my first foray into shirley jackson i don't necessarily like recall what i thought about it at the time although i do remember reading the hunger games um for the first time and thinking this is like that short story i read in middle school
0: oh and was that it for shirley jackson for you no. like the lottery no i don't mean it forever but at the time you read it were you oh. like who's shirley jackson
1: I mean, I was probably like 12, so I think I felt that way about like everything I read. I didn't know <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, you know, oh, this is an Edgar Allan Poe story, you know. You know like You
0: didn't you didn't have a like okay. Yeah. No, like Interesting. My yeah. My
1: family wasn't at home talking about like literature, well, you know,
0: so I just remember I also read The Lottery in like 8th grade or 7th grade. It was part of the the deal. And I remember, you know, in the anthology or whatever, looking down the list and being like, who's Shirley Jackson? Mm. Like, Because I remember another story I remember reading at that time was A Rose for Miss Emily by William Faulkner. And I hadn't read any Faulkner. Still, that's the extent of my Faulkner, and I'm <laughs> fine with it, by the way. But Faulkner I'd heard of. Sure. Hemingway I'd heard of. Like these, you know, these names. And I remember being like, who's Shirley Jackson?
1: Well, I definitely didn't read any Faulkner until high school. And, uh... I read The Sound and the Fury as my first Faulkner.
0: Oh, well, I, I recommend not doing that. And starting with <laughs> A Rose for Miss Emily, it's much more accessible, uh, famous story. Yeah,
1: no, I read uh, The Sound and the Fury when I was, like, 14. It really impressed my English teacher.
0: I don't care for Faulkner, which people have probably <laughs> detected. And, and that, um, that's probably my failing. But
1: I would also say, like, unbeknownst to me probably at the time, I... So this would have been, like, the late 90s, and there was a real glut of, like, good pop horror movies at that time. Mm. And The Haunting, I think it was just called The Haunting, was, like, a movie version of of The Haunting at Hill House that came out in the late 90s with, like, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Liam
0: Neeson.
1: Yeah, and I definitely, like, watched that a lot, and I really liked it. But I, you know, I don't think I had in my mind any sort of, like, connection to
0: you weren't aware of the novel and no. that kind of thing. That sounds like a common thing for people, I think, watching that movie. There's also like a Stephen King. Rip Well, I think it... <laughs> Heather McBride, our esteemed colleague who you've heard on the show before, was sort of reading along, even though she's not on the show today. And she was listening to something by Stephen King and being like, oh, my gosh. But I think he does acknowledge. He's very – Stephen King is another writer who's very um, big Shirley Jackson fan before it was cool but anyway i'm sorry i interrupted finish your your background
1: oh and then uh, years later a book club i was in we read uh, we have always lived in the castle
0: nice um i guess just to give the people at home a little background so the lottery in, in case you didn't read it in middle school is a short story um, published in the new yorker 1948 i kind of wonder <laughs> I don't know if people at the time, editors at The New Yorker, Shirley Jackson herself, would have imagined that the story coming out and being received like it was would become a staple of middle school education. I Um, will say,
1: actually, we could talk about the lottery, I guess, more. But I just read this article in The New Yorker that was talking about all of the letters that the magazine received in the wake of the publishing of this short story. And what's also they point out is at the time, The New Yorker didn't... Indicate whether something was fiction or nonfiction.
0: I forgot about that. So
1: uh, people were confused. Like, is this real or is this based off something that's really happening? Tell me more. A lot of the letters were like, "I don't get it." While well, you explain this story to me, sure. But I also feel like middle schoolers they get it. Like, I think there's you know when you're when you're 12 or 13, you understand kind of like the random cruelty of the the community that you're in. And I think they get it maybe in a way that like adults forget.
0: Yeah, no. And I also get it. I was thinking, obviously, I I kind of spilled my background already. Also a lottery kid, I guess, as (laughs) as we say. Um, And didn't read more Shirley Jackson until well into the Shirley Jackson revival. You know, lots of other people championing her work. And I read We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which we'll talk about more later. That's a novel, as is The Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House came out in 59. We Have Always Lived in the Castle, her last novel came out in 1962. She died in 1965. But, I mean, we might as well start with the lottery, because that's where most people start.
1: Well, and I'll also mention, because I think we talked about it actually before when we were talking about our trip to New England last year. Yeah. But we went to North Bennington. Yes, we did. Where Shirley Jackson lived with her terrible husband. And um, we, like, drove by her house. It's just a house where someone lives, so you can't, like, go inside of it. And there's also, uh, like, another Bennington, South Bennington? Or is it just called Bennington? It's just Bennington.
0: (laughs) But most all the the Shirley Jackson stuff is in North Bennington.
1: Right. But the North Bennington Public Library was closed that day. Yeah. So we went to the Bennington Public Library, and they have, as well, um, some, like, first edition Shirley Jackson – autographed Shirley Jackson novels that you can just check out from the library. So.
0: Which I, as a library person, I'm like, what are you guys doing? It
1: should be in your archive. Put these
0: behind glass and just buy some new copies. They're not out of print anymore, if they were ever out of print. Some of them were, I think.
1: Yeah, so we got to drive by the tiny, like, Village Green where she based the lottery and go it's into- the, Yeah, the central square- The grocery store or she Bennington. used to shop, which is just- It's not like a full grocery store.
0: It's more like, it's like a little hippie co-op now. Yeah. But, and a lot of this, there's a lot of stuff that's like speculation and stuff, but you're walking around where she, where she walked around. And I, I was really interested when we did our New England trip, which I think listeners have heard about a little bit before, to do that. And it was really interesting doing that for like a contemporary writer, particularly a contemporary writer who was not consistently super, super famous because things weren't aren't necessarily preserved or set up in the way that, like...
1: So, like, Robert Frost also lived there. And there's, like, a museum... Yeah. ...and, like, plaques and stuff. But there's no, like, Shirley Jackson stuff there.
0: No, I'm, I'm actually surprised there's not even a statue. Maybe Shirley Jackson wouldn't have been surprised because it seems like a tense relationship with that community. But, no, I kind of wonder. And maybe something will be coming. But one of the things that we learned about a lot on our trip where we visited so many literary sites... Was the path to becoming that literary site, that preserved site varies widely. Some things are like preserved in amber from the minute the person leaves or dies or whatever. Other things are reconstituted against you know great odds. And so it was interesting, so you're 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 kind of more you, you know running around grasping it at remnants. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's a few things we did. I guess it would probably be helpful to the listener to to get a little background on Shirley Jackson. She was born in San Francisco, but she spent the majority of her adult life in Vermont. Uh, her husband, uh, Stanley Edgar Hyman, was a literary critic who taught on the faculty at Bennington College. and so she sort of ended up there.
1: They went to Syracuse at the same time, and he read like a story of hers that was published. In like, like the student magazine was, yeah. or something. and he was like, I'm going to marry this woman. Yeah. And so then he sought her out and met her.
0: That's like a really, that relationship. We can talk more about That's that relationship. That's like
1: romantic sounding, but the rest of the story was not romantic.
0: It's, yeah, they had an interesting relationship. But anyway, we were in North Bennington, and um, we drove around the campus to look at this music hall that some people speculate is, is an inspiration for Hill House You know, I mean, the inspiration of fiction writers is like a mysterious thing, but sure. Um, And then the courtyard where she might have been inspired to to write the lottery is where she went to get groceries. We, yeah, we drove by both of her houses. And in addition to writing this kind of spooky fiction, um, she actually wrote two books of essays, kind of comic essays about motherhood um, and being a writer and a woman Um, take care of all these children. Um, One of them is Life Among the Savages, and the other one is Raising Demons. She really leaned in, and marketing-wise, there's a lot of, you can read a lot of stuff about sort of the arc of Shirley Jackson's career before and after her death, and and why it was the way it was, and sexism is there, but also a sort of genre snobbishness, um, which she probably... Exacerbated by really leaning into kind of this tongue in cheek, you know, uh, and the in, witch. in her jacket copy, you know, kind of, this is all like just tongue in cheek jokes, but you know, and then titling her Raising Demons, you know, she, yeah, she leaned into that. She leaned into that, but she wrote those two books and those were really popular. Like, and she
1: um, had said some those essays, some of them published in like women's magazines.
0: They stuff. were, yeah, they were all, I think mo- all of them were published oh. in like, Good housekeeping housekeeping type magazines, and they were extremely popular, and they paid the bills. Her fiction paid some bills too, but but I think those pieces paid the bills, um, because Stanley Edgar Hyman's uh, two books of literary criticism weren't paying the bills.
1: (laughs) And he hated it.
0: And uh, yeah, yeah. oh yeah, and we went by her two houses, and it's really fun to read those books having been by those houses because the she's very interested in houses. And spaces, and home, and the idea of home. And home as a, a thing you want to trust, but maybe you can't. Maybe there's a menace there. And so these funky houses they lived in loom really large in those books, and I think also inspire the houses in, in her novels.
1: Yeah. I mean, Castle, Hill House, they're, like, main characters in her most famous novels.
0: Yeah. But The Lottery, I'm sorry. We're talking about The Lottery because that's where most people start.
1: So for this uh, podcast, I read, we have this adorable Picador Modern Classics version of The Lottery and Other Stories. And it's like a little, it's a little book, like.
0: Yeah, like it's, it's like a small, the size of like an index card.
1: Yeah, um, which I like. The Lottery is the, it's a, it's got a lot of stories in it.
0: Yeah, people mostly read The Lottery, but she wrote a lot of short stories um, over the years.
1: Yeah, it's got like 25 stories in it, um, and The Lottery is the last one, and it's short. So if you'll recall, The Lottery opens in the morning of June 27th, and the villagers from the small village, about 300 people, have all gathered for their annual lottery. And as you're reading it, you don't know what The Lottery is but everybody's putting their name and it's like clear that it's been going on for a very long time and everyone's drawing their lot and it's like a bunch of slips of paper and one has a black dot on it yeah and so each family draws a slip of paper the family with the black dot then they put their individual names in and draw an individual from that family and then spoiler alert spoiler alert they stone her like there's a pile of stones. Even the small children, they this like pretty gruesome sentence where they place a stone in the hand of her little boy, so that he can participate, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's... And at the
1: time, she's saying it's not fair. It's not fair. And they're like, we've been doing this forever. You didn't have a problem with it last year, you know.
0: There's so much to unpack in that story, and it, which is probably why it's becomes such a staple of anthologies and stuff. It's a short, it's not a very long story, and it's so beautifully done. I mean, it's a gruesome story, but I think it contains, you know, in miniature, like a lot of Shirley Jackson's talents. You know, the details in that story are so fine. And she does these brilliant little character sketches. She's really good at observing people and making you even just in a few lines, really get a sense of who these different people in the community are. And also, one of the biggest things, I mean, I think in every Shirley Jackson thing I've ever read, is a sense both of things happening under the surface, she's really good at like implication and intrigue, and also a mounting uneasiness, a mounting dread. Um, There's a Dorothy Parker blurb on the back of my copy of The Haunting of Hill House that says... Shirley Jackson is unparalleled as a leader in the field of beautifully written, quiet, cumulative shudders. Mm-hmm. I think that really gets at it.
1: In the book, too, there's, or then there's the short story. There's like a little bit of argument that happens about. So the men of the family they draw the initial lot, and then the the Missus Hutchinson, who is the one who ends up getting stoned, is like, "I'm not in that family. I'm in this other family." And they're like, no, no, like the rule is you're in the family that you marry into. This is you. You have to put your name in the in the final thing. Yeah. So that article that you, you had sent me. So this morning I read two articles from The New Yorker and then it told me I was out of articles. And one was about Shirley Jackson generally and one was about the lottery specifically. So I don't remember which part I read this in. But it was talking about so this article about the letters came out at a time like when one of some biography of Shirley Jackson was coming out. And the person who wrote it was trying to find anyone who was still living who had written one of the letters to The New Yorker to see what they remembered about about it. And she could just just track like a couple of people down. And one woman the one woman who'd wrote the letter, she was like, "I still don't really understand it. A lot of the letters they got were like, tell me, what this means or if it was real some people wondered if they like missed like a concluding paragraph when they were printing it because it just ends they talked to Ursula Le Guin because her father uh, he was like a famous anthropologist didn't like the story because he felt like there was no explanation about why this community would have ever started to do this in the first place yeah
0: it seems plausible in a horrible way though I don't know and when I say that she's so good at like implication and things under the surface, you read this story and, and it's, it's so economically written mm-hmm. and you feel there's a whole history here. And then you feel that, you know, I don't know if there's scarcity and they started doing this as some kind of like balancing the, you know, you know I mean, there have been things people have done in human history that have, yeah. that well, have been like that. It's not
1: just like a line where they say, I don't know, they go grow good crops the years they do the lottery or something like that
0: yeah and i think it it raises all kinds of questions and i think that's another reason that it's 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 probably so good for the classroom raises questions about tensions between like society and the individual and and you know you know what what would you do you know as as a person as part of this group Mm -hmm. and
1: yeah because like everyone's fine with it as long as it's not them the one that's being stoned to death
0: absolutely absolutely it makes me think too so it was the thing the New Yorker had published, and I don't know, it might still be true, but certainly at the time in 1948 that they had gotten the most mail about. And she got a lot of mail about it um, for the rest of her life. And her letters came out. I haven't really had a chance to dig into it, but her letters came out last year. But there was a famous one that's been passed around quite a bit where somebody wrote to her to talk about how terrible the story was, how terrible her work was. And Shirley Jackson wrote back. A one-line letter. It says, Dear Mrs. White, If you don't like my peaches, don't shake my tree. Sincerely, Shirley Jackson. That's it. I love that. She she was a real sassy lady. Um, A fierce lady.
1: Yeah, one of those articles was talking about how there's all these different stories about where the lottery, the idea for the lottery came from and what it meant and represented. And that's because she would just tell people different things. Like... They have, you know, like a letter where she said, oh, like I base this off of people in my town that I live in. And um, I don't know, once where she said other other stuff, like it represents, you know, the nature of cruelty amongst, you know, humans and somewhere it's just like, oh, I hated my neighbors. so I wrote this story about them.
0: It's hard to. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know. And then, yeah, I think there's a long history of writers like lying about their. Or, or you know, it's hard to. It's not a simple thing to explain where something comes from, and so you just say stuff. Or maybe you resent all the questions, and so you just say stuff.
1: Or it comes from all different places, and you just don't ever give the whole. You don't
0: ever give the whole answer. I'm sure that. No. I'm sure that courtyard thing comes from one of her, her, her answers. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah.
1: But I'll say reading. I'm I. still haven't read like four of the stories in The Lottery and other stories. But I think it's not, to me, just reading the collection, not the one that like sticks out the most. Maybe it's because I already knew it. But her whole, the whole collection is so weird. And I feel like there's like kind of two styles of story. And one style is there's like these kind of like single characters in the city. And then the other is like, I don't know, like a woman in the suburbs, in mm-hmm. like a family, and they're all like very critical of people and the way that the people interact, and kind of uh, lonely in some ways. And she'll like be, yeah, critical, but in a way that's like I'm say like subtle, but she never really like says it. So in one of the stories, let me see if I can remember which what it was called this is a house one too because it's it has got a lot of front matter in this book it's called flower garden and the it's this woman lives in her husband's parents house like she married him and then they just lived with his parents and she always dreamed of them like moving into this other house like down the hill and she would have this garden, and she'd paint her kitchen yellow. And then this widowed woman and her young son, who's the same age as her son, move into that house and do the things to the house that she'd always wanted to do. And she befriends that woman and, like, sees her every day and kind of, like, has this kind of, like, vicarious living through her. And then um, the new woman, the, the widow, um, hires... Like a black man in town to like help her with the garden and be a gardener and she's just slowly shunned by the whole town and everyone's like did you tell her like she can't mix with that family she's like well I don't know what I'm supposed to say I try to tell her because um, like his kids that he has are biracial he had had like a white wife who left him for like a white man they're just kind of scraping by all of the time and the widow had initially been like really uh, upset at how the kids like treated one of the boys and that's why she reached she's like well you can come work and meet my garden and then his dad said like well why don't I do it I can do a lot more and I need the work and so they, she's literally like shunned and she stops seeing her friend and stuff and the kind of towards the end the widow kind of confronts her and she's like is it because I've hired this guy and she's like I don't see why you're blaming this guy for what you know problem no one wants to like say what the deal is and why it's mm-hmm. wrong you know and then um it, that's just kind of the and i think they might have been you know like move and that's just the end of the story but these kinds of like a lot of it is like this this other story too i think in that vein where it's like this housewife and she's like getting everybody ready in the morning and they can't find their dog and so this would have been the time where people's dogs just like wandered rounded mm-hmm. around, and around. And one of the neighbors says that um, their family dog, and they only lived there for a little while, had gotten killed other people's chickens. And, you know, you can't redeem a dog who's got, like, the taste of blood now. And so she's, like, running her errands in the morning and going to the shops and stuff, and everyone's telling her Oh, they heard about her dog, but she still hasn't seen the dog. And um, telling her, like, the only things you can do to redeem a dog who's killed these chickens, these terrible like cruel things that people have done to dogs mm-hmm. and she's just listening to it and they're just telling these like awful things and they think it's so funny mm-hmm. and that's the story
0: yeah um, Do you feel the dread yeah yeah
1: it's like she thinks she's like moved to this like nice small town or this nice suburb and uh, all of these people are just awful and cruel yeah um, and then Like a couple of examples of what I think of as like the city stories. There's this one where there's like a single man who's the main character and he lives in an apartment. And there's a woman who lives on the same floor in a different apartment. And he's collecting silverware, this beautiful like silverware set. And he's very like proud of his housekeeping and stuff. And he thinks, oh, she's such a slob. And he she comes over for like tea or something. And he's like serving her and... They're just chatting and uh, a friend comes of hers and she lets him in and the friend assumes that the apartment they're having the tea in is her apartment and she just plays along and so does the man to the point where like he cleans up everything and puts it away and she's like, well, why don't you go home now? And so he goes into her apartment like she takes over his apartment and he goes into her apartment and he's like, oh, I hate it here. (laughs) The end. (laughs) (laughs) oh (laughs) she's also very funny i think she is funny that gets lost in the like oh her stories are so grim and so spooky are awful no she's very funny very funny like i laughed out loud a lot there's some like absurdity
0: yeah like i don't think and she's very it's very sly humor and a lot of the stuff it's a lot like even her darkest stuff like you're laughing because she's real good at the absurdity of people yeah yeah so you read that collection. Yeah.
1: Anyways, I recommend it. And they read, I mean, often the st- stories are pretty short. It's, it's been really nice kind of like bedtime reading because you can read, you know, a story or two and then just fall asleep. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So the lottery and other stories when it was published had a subtitle called, do you just remember, Austin?
0: It's, it's like the lottery or the adventures of James.
1: James Harris. And James Harris is, like, a character who comes up in multiple stories. I think he's the friend who comes over for the tea. Mm -hmm. He's in one story, this, like, um, young woman's lover who says, that he's going to marry her and then just, like, disappears. I'm not, I don't know. I haven't read any, like, literary criticism Mm -hmm. about this book or about this James Harris character. Reading it, I'm not always sure that it's the same person, you know. yeah. But mm-hmm. I think the different – I think that's an interesting thread to follow if I would had more time to – Yeah.
0: Prep. Oh, I felt like – I mean, I you know, obviously, there's a lot we can talk about. I felt like I always do this before these podcasts. I'm going to read everything, watch everything. There's so much more. Um, I, I couldn't get a hold of it. Um, there's a collection. There's been a lot of posthumous stuff. And there was a collection called Let Me Tell You that her kids edited, one of her kids – that had some unpublished stories and interviews and some essays and t- that were like basically like talks that she gave on writing. And I would be interested. I think she did do some talks on like that book and stuff, what she said about James Harris. I remember reading some, though, while we were on the plane to New England. And specifically, she was talking about The Haunting of Hill House, which was the main thing I had read. We've always lived in the castle, but my main endeavor for this podcast was to read... Her other most famous novel, The Haunting of Hill House, Becky mentioned, was adapted into a movie in That's the 90s. Um, also a Netflix series. My copy here has the little Netflix promo. It's a haunted house story about this house, Hill House. And it kind of opens. There's this guy, Dr. Montague, who's sort of a, a researcher into the occult. He's a professor. And he's, he wants to, like, go stay in a haunted house and, like, with... And so he sends out all these letters to people that he thinks might have a particular supernatural aptitude or they've been on membership lists for occult societies. And he gets... He ends up getting two <laughs> plus uh, one of the heirs of the house. Nobody lives in the house. But there's, like, some hired staff who keep it up. And so there's these four people and they're staying in this house. I never know. I I mean, I liked it and it has, it has that characteristic writing of hers, which I think is so beautiful on the line level and the character studies and the, that sort of mounting dread and things happening under the surface. It's also like a lot of her books. It has sort of a shy, unassuming woman as the main character, seemingly unassuming, you know, who you are sort of getting a sense. There's more to this person. Like, She's very interested in the idea of the sort of shy, unassuming woman who has incredible, sort of terrible depths. Right? Um, and that's the main character, Eleanor. And then there's a, a kind of carefree, sarcastic woman named Theodora. Um, and then there's Luke, who's the, the heir. That's one of the conditions of renting the house, is that you have to have a member of the family there with you, and then Dr. Montague. I didn't like it as much as I like. We have always lived in the castle. And it's hard for me to tell if, you know, sometimes if it was like, if I was just not receptive to it at this time. Sometimes you're reading something and you're like, Am I tired? Am I great? What do I'm like, Well, get to, you know. But it's beautiful. And, and particularly, I remember in that talk, she kind of talked about, I wished I could have gotten a hold of it before this. She talked about how, how she sort of, she talked about symbols and how she sort of wrote symbols into her work. She's very good at capturing the kind of uncanny logic of dreams. You know these symbols that come up, and and this sort of ha- half logic. You know it makes a kind of sense, but it's also absurd. And, and um, at the, I, I think my favorite part of the book. I'm a, I'm a hair away from finishing it. My favorite part of the book is the beginning, when Eleanor gets this letter from Dr. Montague inviting her to go. And she decides to go, and she had been, like, caring for her invalid mother, and mother had died. Um, and now she's kind of under the, under the boot of her kind of overbearing sister and her sister's husband. And they had bought a car together, but she, they don't want her to take the car, da, 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 So she steals the car and kind of in this flight of, like, you know, I'm not going to be trod upon anymore. Mm-hmm. And then she makes this journey out into the New England countryside. And just different things happen on the way that have this kind of ominous, uncanny, dreamlike quality, including famously, including she's like stops in a diner and there's like a family trying to get their little girl to drink this glass of milk. But she keeps saying she wants her cup of stars and, uh, it's, and the mother's like, oh, she has a cup at home, you know, and when she drinks it, there's stars in the bottom and uh there's a very famous shirley jackson quote that you'll see on stuff that's like insist upon your cup of stars because that's what eleanor thinks she's like don't do it don't drink the milk insist upon your cup of stars but like as the novel goes on eleanor starts to kind of like lose her sense of reality and like she talked about her cup of stars and like things that she's heard other people say become her own past i liked the way in that essay if 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 you get a chance, let me tell you. She has essays and she they're very accessible how she talks about it, the way that she think thought about these symbols and these recurring things that to place in her novels that give it that kind of dreamlike quality. So. And you would not read that book.
1: No. I've also not seen like the new show, though it's by the same guy who did that
0: Midnight Mass.
1: Midnight Mass that we watched. People say it's better than Midnight Mass, but I just haven't seen it
0: yet. You'll have to watch it. Mm-hmm.
1: We liked Midnight Mass. It was weird. And,
0: and and that's I should also say <laughs> that's not my usual. I'm not a person who goes out of their way to do like spooky stuff or mm-hmm. horror, but I think like the strength of Shirley Jackson's writing and her personality have attracted me.
1: And I you can see I think what makes especially like The Haunting of Hill House really attractive to, like screenwriters or filmmakers because if it's like oh there's these different strangers and they come together to do this thing in and a house actually, in the country Yeah. um I we just showed at the library the Haunted Mansion the new version of the Haunted Mansion it's a I don't even say it's a remake but you know Disney makes those movies that are based off of the rides at Disneyland like yeah they made Pirates of the Caribbean and the Jungle Cruise so like the setting is the inspiration And otherwise, they don't have anything to do with the rides. But they made a haunted mansion with, like, Eddie Murphy. And I never saw that one, but I was talking to Des about it here on staff and about the new one. And she's like, oh, the plots, they don't have anything. They're not alike at all. But the new haunted mansion reminds me of Hill House. There's, like, a woman and her son who are stuck in the mansion. They're haunted in a way what makes it so, like, even if they leave, they're still haunted. And then there's, like... Owen Wilson's in it. Was Owen Wilson in the 90s movie?
0: I don't remember. I watched it, but I... Anyways. It's been many years.
1: And then there's, so there's like a Ghostbuster, a priest, a psychic medium. They all come to try to like unhaunt them. You know, so it's like all these different characters. And the only thing they have in common is the haunted house. And they all come together to try to like solve it, I guess. But they all bring their own baggage, their own hauntings with them.
0: And I, I didn't quite finish it. I'm in per- perfect honesty here. But I'm curious, too, you have this Shirley Jackson kind of has the building and uh, dread and this I'm sort of like, what's gonna, what's the cat? I mean, it's a great ghost story. And mm-hmm. people talk about being one of the best sort of, and it's kind of classic. But you're like, something's up. There's going to be some reveal. And, you know, there's a little bit of like, Eleanor's haunted a little bit by this. She took care of her mother. And it seems like oh, she's really close with her mother. But you start being like, oh, this is something's more complicated here. Mm-hmm. And she's starting to allude to maybe her mother called for help and she let her die, ah. you know, kind of a thing. Or, you know, maybe her this, she seems like a person whose personality has been sublimated by other people. And so I haven't quite gotten there. I'm like, something's coming. Something's mm-hmm. coming. I also read part of the bird's nest, which is another one of her novels. Ah. It's a longer novel. You can kind of see through her novels. I mean, they all have that characteristic Jackson thing, but like, you know, how she's getting better. Also, you know, about like a shy woman. She's like a museum worker. Um, I think there's a, one of her books as a librarian. And uh, there's definite similarities. And, you know, people have written at length about where that comes from in, in Jackson's own life. And, and there are people who argue for or against uh, her work as sort of proto-feminist, as a woman sort of writing in mid-century these sort of genre, you know, people who called genre things to talk about some of the anguish of of just life for women at that time.
1: Yeah, there there was that. I think that article that you had sent me that was talking about like her books being in line with that kind of like Mad Woman in the Attic story that you see in like the old wallpaper or.
0: Yeah, the writer of that article I sent you, I think it was Zoe Heller. She was she was kind of arguing against. Reading Jackson as just like pre-feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and reading her more as like a continuation of the past. Yeah. But and I but I I also kind of look at that stuff and think I I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You know, that there is a, a sort of streak of feminism in the in those gothic stories. The Bird's Nest ends up and now it's probably a a, a bit of a trope now, but it's a multiple personality mm-hmm. book. And and that's the building dread. Uh, is you're like, what's going on with this this woman? Um, But the character studies are also amazing, particularly she's like this woman. It says on the back, Elizabeth Richmond is a demure 23-year-old whiling her life away at a dull museum job, living with her neurotic aunt and subsisting off her dead mother's inheritance. The neurotic aunt is a masterpiece. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) She's great. She's so good. She's so good at doing like annoying people, Mm -hmm. like overbearing people. It sounds like her mother was like that. Geraldine,
1: there's uh, like thinking more about this stor- story collection, and uh it seems just to be a lot of like people just like going along with stuff and and then being like, why? <laughs> there's this one really really short story where a woman goes to like a doctor and it's called Colloquy. She goes to a doctor and she's like, I don't know really how to say this, but am I the only one? Am I going crazy? Am I Mm -hmm. like the only one? And he's like, well, what do you mean? Like, tell me more about it. She says, look, yesterday morning, my husband stopped on his way to his office to buy paper. He always buys the Times and he always buys it from the same dealer. And yesterday, the dealer didn't have a Times for my husband. And last night when he came home for dinner, he said the fish was burned and dessert was too sweet. And he sat around all evening talking to himself. And then she goes look, did there used to be words like psychosomatic medicine or international cartels or bureaucratic centralization. And she's saying, like, the use of these, like, these kinds of words, like her husband's just sitting there talking to himself, makes her feel like she's going crazy, like they make no sense to her. She said, and he started talking about social planning on the local level and surtax net income and geopolitical concepts (laughs) and deflationary inflation. He really said deflationary inflation. (laughs) And... And he's like, listen, you know, he's trying to kind of explain her husband. She's like, is everyone crazy but me then? And he's like, uh, he goes, Mrs. Arnold, I want you to get a hold of yourself. In a disoriented world like ours today, alienation from reality frequently. And she interrupts him. Disoriented? Alienation. Reality. She says reality and then she just leaves and that's the end of the story.
0: I love that. Oh, my gosh.
1: It's like a three-page short story. I
0: feel also, though, like, yeah, I mean, I get the the sort of proto-feminist thing because I think she's doing stuff in the, like, 40s, 50s, very early 60s that's, like, part of the conversation now in a different way, gaslighting in her mm-hmm. books. Haunting of Hill House is very, like... Eleanor's like, am I insane? Are yeah. I being gaslit by these people? That's like she doesn't a, use that word.
1: The guy whose house that, the yeah. house that woman just takes she, over. She
0: totally does the gaslighting, the mansplaining. I mean, uh-huh. it's all in there and brilliantly, brilliantly. So I haven't read. There's a, she's got a good few other novels. I didn't get to, Hangs a Man, which was actually based on a murder that happened near North Bennington, um, The Sundial, uh, The Road Through the Wall um she's, she's like six novels in total she was working on one when she died um yeah, 70, it, was, pages. it was gonna be happy it's a it's a really sad thing about shirley jackson she died at 48 left behind a bunch of children left us an amazing body of work but didn't i think realize the personal happiness that uh, she hoped for
1: yeah like her she had been in a, like an institution um and in, like a mental hospital or something right
0: yeah, so she had always had it seems like anxiety problems and depression and which, you know, informs like her work in a really unique way. But yeah, she had kind of a breakdown after she published Hill House and um I think yeah, I think she was doing some pretty serious treatment, but she had really bad agoraphobia and did not we'll leave the house. And you know, before we get to her last book, I feel like we need to talk about her marriage a little bit. Stanley right. Hyman there's a critic and, professor. and a professor, Jewish, um, which some people, you know, people go back and forth about how much alienation she really felt or how much bad feeling there really was in the town. But some people, th- there was might have been some pretty serious anti-Semitism. Yeah.
1: At one point, she said the lottery was about anti-Semitism.
0: Yeah. yeah. Anti-Semitism. Also, not just anti-Semitism, but a kind of mixed marriage kind of mm. thing. And their relationship, I don't know, the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, oh, No. I mean obviously they had some good things like some affinities serious affinities and passions in common he was super retrograde he expected her to do like all the work plus her writing which of which was paying the bills and then he he cheated on her all the time as a matter of principle yeah um he was like real like from the beginning it sounds like mm-hmm. of their relationship and you know she came from kind of it sounds like an abusive home verbally abusive mother In a way that you know the article i sent you kind of talks about her translating that abuse just into her relationship um and and we've talked a couple times about the biography ruth franklin's a rather haunted life which you know there was a revival happening already but i think that book really pushed that revival along and and gave a fuller picture of her as a person yeah he seemed to have this idea he was going to cheat on her and that was fine that was part of his identity I don't know if she was allowed to cheat on him, although there's a famous story about they would have parties, salons, you know, at this house. You imagine this house it was so full of books. Like she talks in her, her comic pieces about the sheer amount of books that they had in these houses. It was insane. But, you know. Like our house? A, a, yeah. A bigger <laughs> houses, though. And, you know, Ralph Ellison's hanging around like they they were friends with all these literary people. Dylan Thomas came to the house one time and there was a story that maybe she made out with Dylan Thomas on the back porch. And people are kind of like, good for her. Um, (laughs) There's something just really lovable about her, though. I mean, the character of her as a writer, her Mm -hmm. voice that I think people really identify with. She's she's got all these things she's dealing with, but she's fierce in a certain way and, and idiosyncratic and and.
1: Yeah, she keeps like a sense of humor.
0: A sense of humor and a real strong sense of herself. And I think one of the, the beautiful things and heartbreaking things um, in a certain way about her last book, which a lot of people say is their favorite, and I, and I think it is my favorite, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. The overriding sense I have about this book is that it feels, especially when you read earlier stuff, it has things in common, but it feels like she's more unapologetically herself more unapologetically weird and idiosyncratic Mm -hmm. and it works so well it's so good it's so good and it's been a while i wanted to reread it i'm holding a beautiful edition of it that they put out a penguin deluxe just gorgeous but again it's alienation from this Mm -hmm. rural community for these these people who are sort of outsiders there's the growing sense of dread what's really going on here it's these two sisters who live in this house with their sort of disabled uncle, spoiler alert, like the whole family was poisoned, except the daughters and an uncle Julian, who sort of survived accidentally. And then basically, you know, this is sometimes people say that aphorism about, what is it, like that there's only two kinds of stories, like a stranger comes to town or someone goes on a trip or a stranger comes to town, something like that. A stranger comes to town. Yeah. A cousin from the outside world, and the the two characters, Constance and Maricat.
1: Maricat. What a great name.
0: Yeah. And Maricat, I think, is... She's one of the indelible characters of literature, I think. But I'm talking too much. You should talk about the
1: book. Um. Well, I think you remember it maybe better than I do. But yes, she's the narrator, right? And yeah, she's talking about her family throughout the book and what happened. I just really remember, like, the end And as a reader, you find out or I don't know if it's ever really like spelled out that Maricat's the one that poisoned all of the family and that, you know, for her like to be alone with her sister, that's like the happy.
0: Yeah. And to say it just to say it out loud doesn't do it justice. Like (laughs) the deep psychology of of these people.
1: Like as, as you're reading the book and she's talking about like the family and the family dynamic and stuff it's clear that it's you know like she doesn't miss them like
0: no you may be and it's been a while since I read it there's maybe a little hint of yeah there's some bad stuff yeah. going on and she's sort of she took an action and sort of created this world mm-hmm. and and one of the other sort of tensions in the book and it's classic Jackson like we're talking about you know this community mm-hmm. and a, you know another sort of rural New England community she tries. She goes out to get like, groceries, and this is a big, very it's a little, doesn't sound like a big thing, but it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in that article, they talk about Shirley Jackson too, like feeling self-conscious. It sounds like her mother was also always criticizing her about like being repetitive or obsessed mm-hmm. with the same things, and it's true. I mean, you see these things, but I don't think it. I think it's kind of beautiful. She just keeps working with these subjects that are and and getting better and better and better uh, with them.
1: What, we were at um, the Portland Book Festival a couple of weeks ago, and we were listening to, um, well, I forget her name, the writer of How to Say Babylon, and...
0: Uh, Sonia St. Clair, I think, and uh, Jane Wong, uh, who wrote Meet Me in Atlantic yeah. City.
1: Uh, right. But she was saying, um, she quoted somebody else who I don't remember as saying, because they're both poets, and then they were talking about memoirs that they've written that... Poets just write the same six poems over and over again. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I remember going and seeing a talk too. It was like eight o'clock in the morning. I was really tired, but it was um, Natalie Diaz, the poet Natalie Diaz. And she was talking about repetition mm-hmm. and symbolism and talking about indigenous culture and kind of like the indigenous embrace of repetition. So she's like, like, yeah. like that there's this very Western, like, oh, you got to be novel. You got novelty or things don't bear repeating. And she's like, no, like you work with your symbols mm-hmm. um, and you they're endless. They're inexhaustible. And you you keep, you know,
1: it's like you can never really say or articulate what's going on in your mind. Right. Yeah. So you just keep trying to do it.
0: Yeah. And things will be different, but the same. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's you know, it's got it's like you look at a writer like this. It's got your fingerprints are on everything. But there's a trajectory too. But she was sort of making that, that, that case of sort of like indigenous culture and just own it. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful thing. It's not like oh, this writer is- Yeah,
1: and I think that's what's cool too about like what we've been doing with our little like author a month uh, podcast is like when you are able to read like someone's work or multiple pieces of their work like together you can see or you start to see these patterns and, like, the things that concern them or the things that, like, haunt them Mm -hmm. pop up, you know, over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, you know, the questions that they're trying to answer or, like, you know, the problems they see in the world. And I think that's really cool. It makes me feel like there's only a few authors, I think, where I'm, like, I really read everything that they... Right. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's really cool. I think of like I really love this author called m- Melina Marchetta. She's Australian and she's written like a lot of young adult books and then a few years ago she wrote this like adult like a th- you know kind of like a thriller almost like a m- mystery and seemingly in like different genres but having and she having read You know, her teen fantasy and her like realistic teen novels and then this like mystery. I could see like this has all her concerns about, you know, she's really concerned with like diaspora and and immigration. And that comes out in no matter what she's writing or what genre it is. Mm -hmm. And it really makes you feel like a connection to that author and their work. Yeah. In a way that's just so like meaningful and satisfying to me.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think it's good.
0: It is good. It is good. And for some people, Shirley Jackson is that Mm -hmm. writer. Yeah. And it's, you know, before we go, I think we should say, I think we've covered a lot, you know, but I wanted to talk a little bit about revival, Mm -hmm. you know, the revival of writers. I think we've lived in a time sort of unparalleled time of reexamining and reviving writers for a few reasons. I mean, and there are some publishers that that that's their whole deal. Right. You know, Penguin Classics. Particularly and uh, New York Review Books publishing, and some of it has been, you know, kind of writing cultural historical wrongs, and I think Shirley Jackson fits in that category. You know, sexism for sure, but also genre. We talk about genre snobbery. You know, this idea that, you know, I thought a lot of you've seen a lot of people become victims of that, um, or even somebody who I wouldn't say has needed to be revived because she sort of never fell out is Ursula Le Guin, you know, somebody who I know, you know, didn't feel like she was treated on an even hand, you know, or, you know, people would have said, this isn't literature. Mm -hmm. This isn't literature, which is totally wrong, but it's amazing to see so many writers like Shirley Jackson kind of like you wish they had gotten their due. I mean, she was very famous and popular in her time, but you know, you wish they could see it. A lot of these writers, it doesn't come until after they're gone. And I know one of the things that's made that popular uh, possible Not just our our changing culture, but also the internet. Mm -hmm. We were talking about, you know, and if a writer, particularly if a writer fell out of print, you just couldn't get their books. Like you just, you know, you would haunt the used bookstores and hope one popped up.
1: Yeah, or maybe if you had a dealer, you could write to and be like, "Hey, I'm looking for this." If you, yeah, I mean, if you if you you were
0: if you had that connection, um, and and that has helped revive people, you know the fact that f- fans are able to connect with one another and and find the books more. And then also a lot of these people get championed by writers, you know, who say, oh, you know, you want to know where I got my inspiration?
1: No, you said that um, thing about Carmen Maria Machado citing Shirley Jackson as influence. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you said that, I was like, ah, like I can see that almost yeah. in like the reverse too because I've I'd read more of her short stories before I'd read very much Shirley Jackson mm-hmm. and that kind of like,
0: you see the family resemblance. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm trying to, I don't know how to describe some of the weirdness, like yeah, way that some of the stories like end is almost like anticlimactic, I guess mm-hmm. in a way that really just like keeps you wondering. Yeah. And thinking about it.
0: Yes. Yeah. No, very much so. I think She's one of the people I would, you know, the first people I would think of, along with, like, Kelly Link, who's maybe a little bit less well-known. But then, you know, big people who are fans. Stephen King cites her as an influence. Neil Gaiman, um, Jonathan Lethem, like, lots of people uh, people might recognize.
1: Yeah. And I think, like I mentioned, the Hunger Games earlier. I think you just see it, like, in the culture, too.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely she wrote a lot about it, a kind of intrigue, a kind of, but, you know, I think her life has a lot of intrigue for a lot of people, too. I know I certainly felt that way. This, who's this person? There's more to this person, you know, whose name I just know from this anthology, this, short, this one short story. Um, and it's cool that we, we get to see more and more. One thing we didn't mention about North Bennington um, that we were hoping to do is we, we you, the North Bennington Library was closed, the public library. They have one of her ceramic cats. <laughs> Apparently, she collected ceramic cats. And the house was like full of of cats, the second house in North Bennington. Um, and her husband died like very shortly after her, like maybe a year. He had a heart attack in one of the restaurants downtown and, and died. And then I think somebody came in and just rented the house like as is, furnished with all their stuff in it. And I believe people started making pilgrimages. And the guy who lived there for I think many years eventually I think bought the house would would give the pilgrims a cat so slowly and one of the cats ended up um sort of guarding over the stacks at the uh, public library which delights me for some reason
1: isn't that funny like
0: going in and living in the house full of these two dead people's stuff sounds like something Shirley Jackson would write about
1: (laughs) right also about like you know someone coming to the door just like being like hey as someone I admire used to live here can I look around that's, people don't do that anymore. But, it's gutsy. Um, I think it used to be more of a thing people would do. Thing. I always remember reading like, you know, like Ellen Montgomery's books, like the Anne of Green Gables books and Emily books. And they're always like, not always, but you know, they're walking somewhere and it takes two days or whatever to get there. And so they just like go to someone's house and they're like, can we stay here? And they're <laughs> like, of course you can. Well, come on in.
0: Yeah. Also, because it's an Ella Montgomery book. They're not like, get out. Um. <laughs> I remember there was like a story about Louisa May Alcott like hiding in her living room because people were coming and like peeking yeah. in the windows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, didn't want to be seen.
1: Yeah, fame, man.
0: Well, thank you for doing doing Shirley Jackson with me. This is one I've wanted to do for a while. Yeah. I'm also very excited about our next author, uh, N.K. Jemison. Mm-hmm. This is someone I'm really coming to without a lot. I feel like this one was one we kind of end up doing this where, you know, maybe one of us is coming with a little bit more um, background or emotional sort of connection to Stakes. work. Stakes. And then somebody's fresh. Yeah. And I, I'm coming to N.K. Jemisin really fresh. But it's a name that I've been hearing around. I'm
1: really fresh, too. Like, it's like I've been meaning to read.
0: Same. Same here. Yeah. Seeing the books around, hearing the name. My mm-hmm. sister's a big fan. So I'm looking forward to it. We're almost to the end of the year. I hope you all are, are, are still doing the challenge. It's not too late. It isn't um, too late. You know, you, some of y'all, you got holiday breaks. You could read all the books. Don't worry. And uh, as as we did last year, we'll do a drawing mm-hmm. of the people who yeah. finished.
1: And I think I'm going to check how I'd set it up, but I believe the challenge goes through mid-January. Yes.
0: Yeah, so you have time. You could win a Reader's Delight box. Uh,
1: also, um, we're kind of getting together. A schedule for Your Shelf or Mine for 2024. So if you have any suggestions for uh, books or authors we should read, you could just like hit us up. Please do. Yeah. You can email Longview Library at mylongview.com.
0: Absolutely. All right.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening to Your Shelf.
0: Or mine.
1: I'm Becky. I'm
0: Austin. Bye. Bye now.
1: Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldry from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldry.